Revelation 21, beginning in verse 1, and I'll read down through verse 8. John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. And he said, Write it down, for these words are trustworthy, and they're true. And he said, It's done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life, and I'll do so without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers and the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur which is the second death. Why don't you join me as we pray? Father, these are at once in the same time glorious and sobering words. So I'm asking that you would come and do what I cannot, and that is grip each of us with the unspeakable grace that awaits us. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. You know, this world is not your home. Let that hit you. This isn't it. This world is not it. That's why so many of you in this room probably experience this gnawing sense of being unsettled. Do you? If, despite how many good things happen in your life, you just don't feel completely settled, that's good because the Scripture is clear that if you are in Christ, you are a stranger, an alien, a sojourner in this world. This world is not your home. If you have this sense, not of just merely being unsettled, but maybe being uneasy, if that's you, that's good because you along with all creation ought to be groaning under the weight of this fallen world. You ought to be longing for another. Indeed, if you're unsettled, uneasy, and you just can't help but be unsatisfied, try as you might, you're never satisfied in this world. That is in part normal, natural good, because the Scripture says if you are in Christ, you ought to long for a better city. We are made for something more. C.S. Lewis, the famed British author, he once memorably remarked that if you have a desire that you just can't satisfy in this world, if there's just some desire deep within that you just can't get satisfied, the most probable explanation is that you were made for another world. My friends, indeed, that is true. We were made for another world. This world is not our home, and yet... Here we are, settling in like we're home. How many of you, if you were candid, would admit, man, I, I, I'm trying, I'm longing to be settled in this world. 
Honestly, when the world treats me like a stranger, an alien, or an exile, I don't like it. I, I feel like that's a wrong injustice. I feel like something is wrong here. How many of you are longing to be at ease in this world, at ease in Babylon, looking everywhere for a fix, everywhere in this creation to try to make you just feel at ease, to be settled? How many of you are trying to be satisfied this side of eternity? You're trying. You're pining for paradise now. You want heaven to be on earth. And my word to you is just hear this gentle reminder from God. This world is not your home. You were made for so much more. Your home, my friends, is in heaven. Heaven is the final destination. God has designed you to enjoy. And by the way, not just us. Every person that breathes the air we breathe knows this to be true. It is the hope of the world. Don Richardson once wrote a famous book entitled Eternity in Their Hearts, which is citing Ecclesiastes 3 and verse 11, which says God has put eternity in the hearts of man. And in this book, his central argument is that there has never been a people group in all world history that has not had a conception of the afterlife. Every tribe, no matter what pagan tribe you pick, has some view of the afterlife, some desire, inner longing for heaven. It's the hope of the world. And by the way, it's very clearly, manifestly, the hope of this word. The word heaven is mentioned some 530 times throughout the Bible, 55 of which you find here in the book of Revelation alone. And so I wonder, if, is this hope of the world and hope of this word, is it, is it your hope? Or if you were honest, would you say, my word, every time I think about heaven, I just, I don't know, I get a little bored or a little confused. I don't know what to think of it. Is it strumming on harps? I remember as a child riding in my dad's vehicle, going to my grandparents, which was six hours away, and I'd start staring at the back of a seat thinking, man, this car ride feels like eternity. And if this does, you know, eternity's a long time. I don't know that I want to go to heaven and like forever. Do I really want to do that forever? When you think of heaven, does it fill you with hope or does it just fill you with perplexity? If it does, if you are one of those that just doesn't think about heaven much, oh, this text is for you. I pray this day you will behold with me the glories of the eternity that awaits us. And I want you to notice, if you do this, it is going to help you live today. It is going to help you fight the fight of faith today. Let me make this point through an illustration. Perhaps you've heard of a famed swimmer in the 1950s named Florence Chadwick. Florence in the 1950s swam from Catalina Island off the coast of Los Angeles. She swam 26 miles to the shore of California. Well, as she's swimming, she's 15 hours into this swim, which by the way, I'd be done after 15 minutes. She's 15 hours into this, and the fog started to set in. The fatigue very clearly set in. And after 15 hours, she gave up. The rescue boat got her only to realize of the 26 miles, she was one mile from shore. So as you might suspect, she decided to get back on that horse and she did it again. And she completed the 26 mile journey. And when she completed it, they interviewed her and asked, what was the difference? How'd you finish this time? And her words were this, I kept the shoreline in mind. I kept an image, a picture in my mind of my destination, and it kept me going. It kept me motivated. And my friends, that is a wonderful parable for you and I today. When the fog and fatigue of life starts setting in and you feel like giving up, 
you feel like this world is not worth it, I'm pleading with you to set your mind on the things to come. Set your mind on the grace that awaits you. Indeed, that is, in my judgment, the theme and thrust of this text. Dear church, set your mind on the grace that awaits you. And in this text, Revelation 21, verses 1 through 8, I want to show you five facets of this eternal shoreline that awaits us. Five reasons why unspeakable grace awaits you in heaven. And if you can cling to these, if you can internalize these, if you can chew on these things, meditate on these things, get them in your heart and get them in your soul, I trust you, like Florence, will be able to fight the fatigue, battle the fog, and you will make it all the way to glory. So if you're taking notes, mark this down. Firstly, the first facet of heaven that awaits us, the first feature of this grace that awaits us is, number one, you and I are going to be home at last. Heaven, my friends, is our home. I think Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz probably had it right when she said, there is really no place like home. You know that to be true. You love vacation. I love a good beach vacation. But no matter how exotic your location is, after a certain amount of time, every one of us finally starts wanting to just get back home. Man, there really is no place like home. Your own bed, you just, it's hard to compete with. You want to go home. And the portrait the Bible paints is we were at home in the first two chapters, and we're going to be at home in the last few chapters. But those middle 1,187 chapters, it's those chapters, my friends, where we are not at home, where sin entered the world, and we have been at unease. We have been unsettled, unsatisfied throughout this whole existence. But there is coming a day when we're going to finally go back to the home for which we were made. The paradise of Eden will be remade on earth in other words, our home is in heaven. Now, let me describe heaven as verse 1 describes. First off, heaven is going to feel like home. Look, if you will, at verse 1. It says, and then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. That word new in the original language is kainos, which does not mean new in terms of chronology, like a new child or a new car. It means new in terms of fresh like a rehabilitation or a renovation, changing something into a better version of itself. For example, you may recall 2 Corinthians 5.17, which says, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. When I was saved, did I change completely? My heart did, my inner man did, but my outer self looked the same. Man, if only I had changed on the outside, that would have been great. But we don't change. So too, heaven by inference from verse 1, is going to be a place that looks somewhat similar to this existence, but is going to be infinitely better. So in other words, it's not going to be floating on clouds, strumming a harp. It is going to be a perfect recreation of the Garden of Eden. It'll be paradise on earth. Literally, heaven is going to come to earth. A new heavens and a new earth awaits us. It'll look like home. It's also going to feel like home one day. Notice, if you will, he says the old heaven and the old earth are going to pass away. What do you mean? By that, he is referring to every aspect of this created world, our heaven and our earth, that remind us that this is a fallen, broken place. 
That means everything that makes you sad, every trauma, every thorn and thistle, all those aspects of this created world that demonstrate to you that this is not your home, everything that makes you feel like a sojourner, an exile, an alien, everything that unsettles you, makes you uneasy, unsatisfies you, all those things will pass away, be destroyed, no more. Jesus even said in Luke 22, heaven and earth are going to pass away. The Bible repeatedly, like Isaiah, for example, says all of this is going to go away and there is going to be a new heaven, a fresh, new, recreated heaven. It'll look like home. It's going to feel like home. You're going to finally feel like you're in a place you were made to be in. And my friends, it's going to be like home. Notice, if you will, that last little throwaway phrase in verse 1. You may read that final little clause and think, well, Kyler, that doesn't sound like heaven because it says the sea was no more. You're like, well, my word, I love the ocean. That sounds like paradise to me. Heaven is going to lack the ocean. Well, bear in mind, as you read the book of Revelation, it's a good reminder to each of us that this is an apocryphal book, meaning it is a book packed with symbolic language, much of which should and ought to be interpreted literally, but there are some things that we just are forced to admit. This is in all likelihood not literally saying heaven will have no ocean, though I guess it could be possible. What it is in all likelihood referring to is the imagery of the word sea throughout all the Bible so often refers to evil and chaos. The point is there will be no more evil No more chaos, no more oceans to divide mankind, no more deep, dark depths of the sea that are unfathomable, that scare you to death. Just recall, in that day and time, the sea was uncharted territory. I mean, it it was dangerous, scared you. It still is to this day, despite all of our advances. And he says there's going to come a day when heaven is going to look like home. It's a new creation. It's going to feel like home. Everything that makes you feel like an alien will be no more. And it's going to be home because there is going to be no evil, no chaos, no uncertainty around you. You are going to be at home in heaven. No more thorns and thistles to infest the ground. Praise God, no more soil that is red with the blood of mankind. There is going to be no more graves uh, marking up, defacing the surface of the earth. No more nation-state boundaries and warring within the sea. Chaos, evil, no more. So, take hope, dear church. Don't grow at ease in Babylon today. Don't get too comfortable here. This world is not your home. We are not home yet. So set your mind on the grace that awaits you. You and I are going to be home at last. That's the first thing I want you to mark down. Secondly, another evidence of grace that awaits us is we're not just going to be home at last. Praise God, we're going to be changed at last. You and I, at last, are going to be freed from the bondage of sin and death. Now, you probably can resonate with me. I've walked with the Lord now for 21 years. And in these 21 years that I have known and loved followed the Lord Jesus, every successive year, I don't grow in my sense of holiness. I actually grow in my sense of sinfulness. I feel more sinner, and God seems more holy to me. I resonate every year all the more with the Apostle Paul when in Romans 7 he says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Do you resonate with me? Do you know what it feels like to just hate that indwelling sin that keeps clinging to you, those sins that you just can't shake, all those temptations, those vices that you just can't get rid of? There's hope. There is coming a day when you and I are going to be forever 
perfectly changed. We're going to be free at last. Notice what he says in verse 2. He says, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down. Now, when he uses that word, holy city, New Jerusalem, he is referring at one and the same time to both a people and a place. Let me give you an illustration. I could at once and the same time say, Charlotte is a beautiful city. And I'm talking about the place, a beautiful place to live. But I could also say Charlotte is a wicked city. And by that, I am very clearly referring to its people. In this text, John is saying both a people and a place are in mind here. The new Jerusalem is a people of holiness. They are perfectly renewed. They are made new. And let that just hit you over the head. That means there is going to come a day where you are going to be made holy like God. You are literally going to be like Him. It's crazy to consider that all the sin that clings to you will be no more. There is coming a day where you're not just going to be like Him, you're going to know Him. It says that you are going to be prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. By the way, there is nothing beautiful about we the bride of Christ. In fact, the Bible says that we the bride of Christ are more, most often uh, compared to a harlot, a prostitute. We are unfaithful to a faithful groom. But there is going to come a day where we will be adorned as a beautiful bride of Christ. We will know our maker intimately as a spouse knows a spouse on their wedding day. We will know one another. We will be like him, holy as it were, and praise God, we're going to see him. For what does it say in verse 3? Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He's going to dwell with them. They'll be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. We are going to see God at last. That should give us great, great hope that one day you and I are going to be remade. We're going to be transformed. We are going to be a new creation. The Bible calls this glorification. We will at last be perfectly made new. And so, for you students in this room who are privately struggling with sin, for you men in this room who know your secret sin, for each of us in this room who knows the sin that clings so dear. Hear God speak to you. Your sin does not define you. You are not your sin. There is going to come a day where that fight of faith will end. You will be made whole. You will be changed perfectly. My friends, take heart. Unspeakable grace awaits you in heaven. You will be changed at last. You will be home at last. Thirdly, may you see you will be free at last. My favorite verse in this chapter is Revelation 21 and verse 4, which tells us in a beautiful way that we're not just going to be free from sin. Praise God, we're going to be free from the effects of sin. Just look, if you will, at verse 4. He says, and God is going to wipe away every tear from our eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Did you see what that text just said? There is literally coming a day where there will no longer be any crying. He's going to wipe away every tear from your eye. All of your past trauma, your present pain, your future worries, gone, vanquished, no more. No more crying. There's going to be no more dying one day. That last great enemy called death, the Apostle Paul says, is going to be vanquished, gone, no more. No more crying, no more dying. There's going to be no more sighing in heaven. 
You're going to be no more mourning, no more despair, doubt, despondency, dejection, depression. It's all going to be vanquished, gone, no more, free from crying, free from dying, free from sighing, and free from writhing in pain. For he says there will be pain no more. Can you even conceive of this glory that awaits you? You're going to be free at last from the effects of sin. I love the life and testimony of Johnny Erickson Tata. She uh, famously was in a terrible accident as a teenager. She broke her neck diving in a pool and uh, from that point forward was a paraplegic, a quadriplegic, I should say. And she's had a really difficult life, a lot of pain, a lot of disability. Obviously, she's wheelchair bound, but her faith in Christ is beyond strong. And she once testified in a book that she longs for the day when she stands before her maker, stands before her maker, and looks at him and says, God, thank you for this wheelchair that you used to change me, to sanctify me, but now, if you'd like, go ahead and send it to hell. <laughs> it's kind of a funny way to put it, but my friends, there is going to come a day where all your crying, all the dying, all the sighing, and all writhing in pain will be no more. We will be free from the effects of sin, but not yet. And you know it. There are many of you in this room who are acutely feeling the effects of sin today. Tears may be falling this moment. You may feel pain persisting this very moment. Death is lurking for a loved one. And if that's you, may I just very briefly give you a pastoral word. Never forget this side of eternity that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. He gathers all your tears in, the, in a bottle, the psalmist says. He is using your present affliction to prepare you for an eternal weight of glory. Your weeping may tarry, may last for the night, but joy comes in the morning. So take heart. One day, his nail-scarred hands are going to wipe away every tear from your eye. So just set your mind on that grace that awaits you. You are going to be free at last. You are going to be changed at last. You're going to be home at last. And may I give you a fourth evidence that we see beginning in verse 5 and following I can't think of a better way to say it. You are finally going to see at last. Your faith is going to be made sight, which is good news for weary Christians in the fog and fatigue of this world. How many of you find yourself thinking this almost seems too good to be true? My life is too real and raw for me to even entertain these glories you speak of. I resonate with Paul when, I, when he says in 1 Corinthians that we see through a glass dimly. My word, my glass is about as dim as it gets. I, my faith is clinging on, but it is hanging on by a bare thread. I'm struggling, Kyler. I am struggling. And if that's you, just hear God once again. Your faith will one day be made sight. You will see, as verse 5 says, behold, look. See, I am going to make everything new. There is going to come a day where you are going to see. Your faith will be vindicated. You're going to see that he really is who he said he was. He is the one who speaks from the throne with full authority, as verse 5 says. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, as verse 6 says. That means he is the A to the Z. He is the sum total of existence. He created all things in the beginning, and he will end all things in the end. He is the God of all authority. He is the God of all history. And this God will be proven on the final day to be who he said he was. You're going to see him. One day, your faith is going to be made sight. You're going to see him. 
those secret dark doubts you have on your pillow at night when you wonder, is he real? Does he hear my prayers? Does he know me? Is this even? Maybe all those professors I had were right. You're going to see him one day. Your faith is going to be made sight. You are going to know that he is who he said he is, and you are going to know that he did what he said he would do. He says in verse 6, it is done. Echoing the words of Christ on the cross, it is finished. Jesus is going to come and finally fulfill everything he promised. He who lived the life we could never live and died the death that we deserve was raised from the dead one day. He is going to come again, my friends. He will make all things new and we will experience our home in heaven with him. Oh, you can have a certainty about the eternity that awaits you. So just take heart. Take heart. That day has not yet come. That is true. You and I must walk by faith and not by sight until that day comes. But sing with me the glorious hymn, It is well with my soul, when all God's people cry out, O Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be made sight. The clouds are going to be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it's going to be well with my soul. There is coming a day, my friends, when you are going to see at last. And I know the fog is real. I know the fatigue is setting in. Get your mind, set your mind on the grace that awaits you. You're going to see him soon enough. We are almost home. That is the fourth thing I want you to plead. I want to plead with you to behold, but may I give you one fifth and final facet of this eternal shoreline that awaits us, the glories of our home in heaven. I want you to see fifth and finally that you're not just going to see him at last. You're not just going to be free at last. You're not just going to be changed at last. You won't just be home at last. My friends, fifth and finally, you will be satisfied at last. For look, if you will, at the latter half of verse 6. There is one type of person who gets to go to heaven. The scripture is clear. There is but one prerequisite to get to glory. And what is that prerequisite? What does it take? Notice who gets glory in the latter half of verse 6. He says, to the thirsty. The thirsty. The thirsty. Who amongst us doesn't know what it is to be thirsty? Both Physically, of course, we all require water. And spiritually, every person born of a woman knows what it is like to thirst for something spiritual, which is why every person I've ever met as a pastor is essentially hell-bent on trying to get happy. Every person, everything they do in their life is designed to try to figure out how to make themselves happy one way or another, to get satisfied. And the essence of sin is trying to get satisfied in something other than God, which the prophet Jeremiah uh, memorably illustrates when he says in Jeremiah 2 and verse 13, my people have committed two great evils. They have forsaken me, the fount of living water. And instead, they have hewed for themselves cisterns that can hold no water. That's a beautiful picture of sin, or I guess an ugly one. For it is describing that the essence of sin is saying, God, I know you're satisfying, but I don't want you to satisfy me. I want to try to satisfy myself. So I'm going to build this big old cistern to hold my own water, but they're all broken they never hold, which is why you, when you looked at that graphic image last night on your phone, what happened? Fleeting moment of pleasure, gone. You're not satisfied. 
You who cheated and fudged the numbers just a little bit at work, fleeting moment of pleasure, gone. It never satisfied. You who experimented in ways you know you ought not have, just a moment of pleasure, gone. It never satisfied. Sin is a lie. It never satisfies. And God is speaking to his people and saying, I am the fount of living water. Come to me. If you drink from this fount, you will never thirst again. His words to his church are, thirst for me, I will satisfy you. Notice the gift of this living water he promises. It is a gift of God. He says, I will give it. This is not something you can go get. I'm going to give it to you. I will give you from the springs of the fount of living water. It is not just a gift of God. It is a gift of grace. For he says, you can get it without payment. Don't even try to pay me for it. You couldn't afford it. I'm going to give it to you as an act of my sheer grace. A gift of God. It's a gift of grace, and it is a gift, evidently, that keeps on giving. For in verse 7, he uses this second analogy. He says, if you drink from this fount of living water, you will be called a conqueror. A conqueror is one who endured to the end, who persevered, who fought the good fight, who kept the faith, who finished the race. In other words, God is saying, if you want to go to glory, you just got to be thirsty for me. Just Let's stop there and pause and just consider the glory of that simple statement. You want to know what makes Christianity good news? What makes it good news is that our message is unspeakable grace awaits the thirsty. Not the wealthy, not the healthy, not the wise. Unspeakable grace doesn't await the guiltless, the shameless, the blameless, the faultless. It awaits the thirsty, the needy, the humble, the broken. All it requires is that you see your need. And so I plead with you, don't settle for the sweets of soda and sweet tea that you think will satisfy you, but you know it tastes good in the moment. You're going to be thirsty later. Don't settle for all the lies and pleasures of this world. Go to the fount of living water, which alone can satisfy your sin-parched soul. And when you do, you will be satisfied. This water will be one that makes you never thirsty again. So set your mind on that grace that awaits you. You're going to be satisfied, my friends, at last. But before I pray and conclude this message, this Lord's Day, I must draw your attention to verse 8, which illustrates for us that not all will enjoy the grace that awaits you and I. Grace doesn't await all, biblically. This text is clear that justice awaits those who do not thirst for him. He calls them the cowardly. That's those folks who deny Christ under duress. He calls them the faithless, those who reject Christ outright, the detestable, those vile, underhanded folks. Grace does not await those who thirst rather for the world, the murderers and the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars. Rather, what awaits them is the graphic, horrific imagery of judgment, the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which God calls the second death. 
Now, I wish I had more time to plumb the depths of the weight of this verse, but may I just simply draw your mind back to one glorious hope. You may read verse 8, and you can't help but think, my word, it's like looking in a mirror. Kyler, I, I see myself in a lot of those verses, a lot of those words, those descriptors. I mean, my word, who amongst us can't look at the word all liar and feel a shiver come down our spine? If that's you, may I just give you the hope of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, where he says, these type of folks will not inherit the kingdom of God. He repeats the John, but then he turns a page and there is great glorious news. And he says, looking at verse 8, and such were some of you but you were washed, you were saved, you were changed by the blood of the Lamb. Oh, Hickory Grove, do you realize all of us were verse 8. Every last one of us in this room who have joined us online, we were verse 8. But there came a point in time where we at last recognized that our thirst was not going to be satisfied by this world. And so we thirsted for the living water and he gave it to us without payment, without price. We received that gift of God, that gift of grace, that gift that keeps on giving. We thirsted. And so we stand at even ground at the foot of the cross and together with one accord, with one voice, we cry out to a lost and dying world, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. There is immeasurable unspeakable grace that awaits you. Oh, if you will just set your mind on the grace that awaits you in Christ, if you just thirst for Him, if you just taste and see He's good, you're going to be home at last. You're going to be changed at last. My friends, you're going to be free at last. You're going to see at last, and you will be satisfied at last. But for you who know Jesus, and you've walked with Him for years like me, nevertheless, the fog and the fatigue persist. And you're 15 hours into this. Some of you are 40, 50 years into this fight of faith. And it's getting tough. If that's you, oh, I pray that you would set your mind on the grace that awaits you. Just get a picture of the glory that awaits you. Hang in there, my friends. This fog and fatigue will end soon. This world is not your home. You and I are almost home. Why don't you join me as we pray? With your heads bowed as we go to the Lord in a time of commitment, each of us in this room ought to respond. For you who have not thirsted, tasted, and seen that God is good, this very day I invite you to come. There are pastors at the front who would love to counsel with you. That's why they're here. They're seated on the front row. You come down and talk to one of them. If you'd like to come and pray at one of these steps as we sing, the invitation for you is to come. For most of us in this room, though, I suspect you ought to respond as I have had to privately in my study, and that is to cry out, oh God, forgive me for living like there's endless tomorrows. Lord, would you give me a fresh vision for the grace that awaits me? Oh Lord, may I set my mind on the things to come. And in so doing, may you and I be found faithful, fighting the fight of faith, battling the fog and fatigue, and recognizing that there is going to come a day when you and I are going to be home at last. Oh, God Almighty, would you do this for my friends, for my own heart, for my family. Open our eyes to behold the glory that awaits us, the grace that awaits us. We praise you, Jesus. Thank you for saving us. 
Thank you for giving us of the living water. What a gift. What a gift. Would you renew our thirst for you? And would you cause sin-parched souls in this room to thirst for you, the living water? Oh, may we all taste and see that you are good. I pray this in Jesus' matchless name. Amen.